You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. Jews, like me, are big complainers. And if we had not jam-packed this program, I worry that one of you would have come up to me and said, Noch, not enough already. But I do recognise the downside of that is I'm stuffing you so full of content that you're a bit exhausted. But this is uh, dessert, sweet dessert, before we have the party tonight. Honey cake. So we're following a discussion about documentary with a verbal preview of a hugely exciting new series. A series for BBC, five parts, BBC Two, which I hope will illuminate and explain history, the history of the Jews. And even though I think we know I am Jewish, I really need a history of the Jews. I now spend as a late uh, secular convert to practicing some sort of Friday night Shabbat supper, we get out, and I'm not joking, Judaism for dummies afterwards, and we read out bits because I just do not know a lot about the history of the Jews, but Simon does. Uh, Who better than to tell us uh, about such a rich, artistic, cultural, complicated, contentious history than somebody who sheds light on everything with such verbal and visual dexterity than Simon Sharma. Just to give you a sense of what a difficult undertaking it is, I think it's only one fact that perhaps every Jew will not contest that no Jewish person is alike in how they see themselves and their identity and their history. And the next time I see Simon Sharma, he will be speaking at my father's memorial service. My father died a Jew who observed nothing in his lifetime except he asked for Kaddish, the most important prayer of the Jews to be said, not at his funeral, uh, or rather not immediately after he died, but at his funeral. So I give you someone very dear to names, not numbers, and very dear to me, and very dear now to the BBC, Simon Sharma. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Julia. Dear but cheap. Um, So... um, In the nightmare world, um, which Julia and Names Not Numbers have resisted forever, in which Charlie Leadbeater's world, however, comes to pass, where numbers have prevailed, there are these two guys walking down the street one way, and there's another guy walking up the other way. And um, they they only have numbers, of course. And and one suddenly recognises the single walk, and he says, Oh, God! Six, one, two, three, five, seven. And then one says, no, it isn't four, three, five, two, one. And he says, yes, you know, have you met my friend one, nine, four, four, four? It's funny, you don't look Jewish, you know. <laughs> um, 
And the, the sense of this, um, our discussions, connection and disconnection, is a theme not only kind of echoes through Jewish history, but in some sense it is Jewish history. You could say the most, um, that Jews have really lived the issue of whether they are connected or have been made to be or have chosen to disconnect themselves from the rest of humanity. They, lived that, they have lived that over 3,000 years in the most intensely epic way and have paid a very heavy price when disconnection has got the upper hand. And I wanted to, when I was asked by the BBC, it was their idea, you know, that I might be interested in doing this. And I knew immediately, really, that it was both, I wanted to flee like Jonah to catch the first ship from Jaffa to Tarshish. And I knew it was both impossible thing to do, especially in the four hours they were giving me. It's turned into five hours. And that I wanted to do it very much as well. And that sort of had to do it. Precisely because it was always in my mind, not a kind of tunnel vision history of the separate identity of, of, of Jews. There was a very fine series made in the late 70s by Abariban, um, former Israeli foreign minister, but it was very much a kind of Jews unto themselves, you know, from the first backlit camel um, to the inevitable Star of David being raised over the town hall at Tel Aviv in 1948. There was a sense in which it was a peculiar identity, and nobody who's interested in Jewish culture and history um, really can be sincere or know what they're talking about if they don't at least claim a very strong sense of distinctiveness. Judaism and Jewish identity was formed, without any question, as an act of differentiation somewhere out there in the Sinai Desert or wherever it may or may not have happened. It was a differentiation from other pagan cultures. The Jews were, in their own telling of it, that's why it's called the story of the Jews, in their own telling of it, the Jews were given a set of ethical principles and way, a way to live, which differentiated them from the pagan world in particular. But, but, rather crucially, they were always, you know, as you know from the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill and so on, thou shalt not steal, honour your mother and father. They had universalising content. And this tension between the way Jewish history makes itself up for Jews and the sense in which it has been puts in the world in order to reveal a certain kind of ethics goes to the heart of the Jewish experience. And that was the kind of series I wanted to make. And I hope I've had a, inevitably, you know, with a, with a, a task so difficult, um, the words of Samuel Beckett in, in Worstwood Ho, fail better always come to mind. So I hope at least I fail better. So I wanted to make this series not just about Jews as kind of separate identity, but the interface, the connection um, between Jewish experience and the rest of the world. So I very much hope this series is for everybody, not just, not just people inside Jewish culture. And um, we begin, actually, um, these are Freud spectacles from Freud's house in Maysville Gardens. And uh, after the preliminaries in the first program, that's actually rather paradoxically where we begin. Because um, Freud, actually, in his last years, I'm sure you all know, 
Um, when he came to England, lovely, gentle, magnanimous England, as he rather sweetly called it, was engaged with the last rather raggedly unfinished manuscript of his career, Moses and Monotheism. And it is, as they say, no accident that he was so heavily invested in trying to inquire into the story of how Jewishness began and the hatred of Jews began by trying to think historically, although at some points he called it a historical novel, trying to think historically how the exodus might actually have taken place. Freud actually began that project as fascism was closing in on his universalizing project of creating a new science that had been demonized and marginalized as Jewish science and all its practitioners rounded up and the institutions either taken over by the Nazis or or um, closed altogether. Um, Freud had never not thought of himself as Jewish. Um, perhaps, certainly like Eric, he was a godless Jew, but nonetheless, there was never any question about him being equivocal about his Jewishness. Um, in the preface to the Hebrew edition, um, in of Totem and Taboo, um, he wrote that um, it may be surprised some people that someone who is so estranged from religion should nonetheless think him, himself as Jewish. And if asked what Mr. Freud, who called yourself godless, is left to you of Jewish identity, I would answer only the most important part. He was infuriatingly cryptic about the content of what that most important part was, would be in the preface to Totem and Taboo. But by the time he actually got to Moses and Monotheism, those of you who know it, has a very weirdly lurid, fantastical thesis that actually Moses was an Egyptian. That's a whole lot less weird and was the last high priest of the monotheistic cult of Akhenaten and was looking around being kind of on the run from the return of paganism to, to Egypt for a suitable people on whom he could imprint this eccentric, new, one God, formless, faceless, invisible God religion, and discovered the toiling Hebrews and leads them out and so on. The toiling Hebrews are more attached to paganism than he bargained for, and out of resentment they kill him, but out of guilt, is this starting to sound just a bit Freudian really, out of guilt, out of guilt they adopt um, the religion anyway, but the crucial thing about <clears throat> about the um, the you know the the second part of Moses' monotheism is actually his engagement with the startling fact that it is endured, that the Jews stayed with it through thick and thin, through destruction and isolation and exile. What kept them going was the contents, not only of their religion, but more generally this set of ethical principles, first adumbrated in the Torah, but, um, and by the way, Freud actually also brought from Vienna to London a menorah, which he often kept on his desk, but kept in his antiquities cabinet, and the family Bible, which his father Jakob had given him um, for his 35th birthday, a beautiful um, German language illustrated, German and Hebrew side by side illustrated Bible. But Freud's view was that what had happened to the Jews in some sense, the point at which that particular identity, that act of differentiation, had become of universalizing connection and significance was that its formative moments have been at moments of defeat, 
of beleaguerment, of, of, of powerlessness, really. The Torah had been, the Bible, most of it had been written in Babylonian exile. The Talmud had been written in times of difficulty in the early Middle Ages. And that um, not only just the word, Freud was very strongly attracted to the idea that a culture of words rather than a culture of statuary, for example, of uh, fixed close stone monuments were at the heart of that, but the portable word, above all, the portable words. Um, Freud noticed, even though he wasn't a religious Jew, that the tefillin, the phylacteries, which were bound around the head, are, of course, a miniaturization of of, of extracts from the Torah, um, that when you put a mezuzah, uh, the protective talisman on your doorpost, um, inside it are words, and you don't have a kind of fetish image of the pagan world to protect you from demons. You have the words doing all that. It's words even in the shape of the scrolls, the Sefer Torah, that you could take with you when you're on the run. It is a suitcase-ready religion. It's a suitcase-ready philosophy. And that, in a sense, for Freud, was its heroism, of course, in the face of the return of pagan slaughter, a.k.a. that uh, um, self-congratulatory ethnographer and archaeologist Heinrich Himmler. Do you know there was an archaeological division of the SS? There was. So for Freud, in some sense, the pagan warrior cult was the return of the cult of, uh, of, of force, of the cruelty of force. And the Jews, for better or worse, had actually been saddled with um, uh, with inhabiting a kind of humane culture which represented the opposite. They were, in this sense, enclosed inside their own ethics and were committed, really, to defending it. Which doesn't, of course, <coughs> mean that Jews don't find themselves in the positions of having to compromise or uh, the ethics, the relationship of Israel, Israel to, to Palestinians is a case in point. But I wanted, I wanted, goodness, I'm getting very squeaky. I'm sorry about that. Um, I wanted to make a series, really, which it sounds more like a philosophical treatise, but actually um, this is sort of spine of the theme that runs through many of the programs. And I did also want to make a, a series in which Jewish history, will it work if I, if I walk around a bit? Yeah, seems to. Can you still hear me? You can. Um, I wanted to make a series in which Jewish experience was not seen entirely through the prism, or mostly through the prism, A, of the Holocaust, and B, through the Israel-Palestinian conflict. We do indeed talk about those, those things, but I didn't want to be an, a, you know, an overdetermined history of the Jews and Judaism that was seen through the smoke and ash of the crematoria. Jews, it's fair to say, don't necessarily assume the worst. They prepare for its possibility, which is a very different thing. It's a difference, indeed, between life and death. So I wanted, really, um, this is a, a, a place called Kosice in eastern Slovakia. It's a synagogue that we filmed in. It was built in the 1890s. We've got, is it possible to get a little lower light so you can see a bit more clearly? And... Okay, um, I'll, go, I'll go back to that shot. Oh, thank you, that's a bit better. Um, and it's, you know, when you walk in, literally your feet, you can see 
I'm standing by a pillar there and there is no floor left and you're just sort of crunching on rubble, on debris. And Koshitsa was a medium-sized town. There was a Jewish community of about 15,000. They were tanners and dyers and liquor manufacturers and traders. And in May 1944, all 15,000 of them were deported and never came back from Auschwitz. It was quite late in the process of the final solution <coughs> because Koshitsa became part of Hungary and controlled Slovakia and Hungary for a long time as an ally under Admiral Horthy of Hitler and therefore was protected from the worst of what in particular Adolf Eichmann could do. But the deportations came. So my immediate reaction was, of course, to go into a kind of Kurdish mode and to just sort of perceive the desolation. And it gradually, as my eyes got used to the gloom and actually um, it started, it was a very low light, rainy, cloudy day, then the light came up and I knew it was sort of decorated. I'd seen some pictures, but I began to see how extravagantly beautiful this place was. You can see the so it was built, as I said, in about the 1890s. You can see this extravagantly gorgeous um, ceiling decoration. These are stylized angels' wings, which have go all the way back to the illuminated Ashkenazi manuscripts of the, of the late Middle Ages. And then something else struck me as I began not to think about a community waiting for their moment of extermination, where their heads bowed or even where their heads held high, but a community fully alive and in expectation of life, of as you know, that passage in the book of Numbers where God says, I've set before you a blessing and a curse, life and death, therefore choose life. This was a community which certainly wasn't actually, you know, expecting the worst. And they continue to beautify and build this extraordinary structure. I'm showing you just a corner of the gallery because it suddenly struck me these were windows that were added in the 1920s. And as you might be able to see from this lovely reflection, they were made from what we think of as the Czech modernist art glass movement. It was very much Czech and Slovak too. And we know that actually the whole town participated. This is an orthodox synagogue in the building and the beautification of the synagogue. So suddenly in my mind I wanted to, and we've done this with the help of some very precious home movie archive, which I'm, I'm sorry I can't show you, BBC embargo, alas, forbids me to do that. That's why you're getting a slideshow instead. But in some sense, it's almost a, a better taster for you. But I wanted to kind of reconstruct the flourishing of that particular moment, and as I say, not kind of see it entirely through um, the, an agonized lens. This is a place in Ukrainian Podolia in the south of Galicia, Ukrainian Galicia, called Satanov. And it was a famous Hasidic center. Hasidism arose in the early 18th century, as you probably know. Kind of, it's, Hasidism is often used as a synonym just for ultra-orthodoxy. Um, and it's not. It was a very particular subcult of orthodoxy, which is all about visceral, emotional, joyous communion with God. It was, it was derived from the Kabbalah. It was very strong on a kind of mystical communion, rather than emphasizing the minute, analytical disputation deconstruction of the words of the Torah. So it was very much a religion of, of, of singing and dancing. We know of Hasidic rabbis who somersaulted before the Ark of the Covenant in the, in, in the 18th century. And this great kind of city of the dead, you can't quite see it, was itself again something which actually you could not photograph and you couldn't film without a sense of joy. There was a certain amount of projection. These stones lean beautifully and they're mossy shaped towards each other uh, like lots of 
of old men engaged in prattling gossip. But you can see just from this one example, and we have many more in the film, um, they, they are so far from being austere. The gravestones are festooned with imagery, with dancing lions, with strutting peacocks, with hairs spinning around the wheel of the, of the cosmos. It's one of a kind of stylized fox lying away, bears climbing in the tree of life to seize grapes. And here in this, in, if, you, if you stood on the hill there, and I can't show you that unless we didn't have a high-res photograph, and you look across the little river of Satanoth, you'll actually see an extraordinary synagogue, which is a 17th century synagogue built as a kind of so-called fortress synagogue, very unusually built of stone, which is why it survived the worst that the Nazis and the fascist collaborators could do to it. And it was sort of falling into disrepair, but it was saved by a non-Jew, a local Ukrainian called Boris, who really had made it very simple guy who had life in the construction industry in, in Berdichev in, in Volinia, a little, quite a long way off from Satanov. And he had grown up with this synagogue, and as it catastrophically emptied, of course, of a Jewish population, somehow felt even more connected after the war. Not all Poles and Ukrainians to what it mildly did, and made it with his wife, his life's work, to prevent it from being bulldozed, and indeed to make sure that it actually survives. And it's an extraordinary and magnificent, magnificent structure. The series also, you know, it does, it, there are issues about, actually, I've just said early on about how the spine of the series is about an identity formed around words, really, which sounds like great radio, doesn't it? Um, and indeed probably would be, actually. But... We needed to give a sense of, there is this wonderful, um, it's not exactly a Talmudic book, and it's, it's a kind of pre-Kabbalist, pre-Kabbalistic Kabbalah book called the Book of Creation, the Sefer Yetzirot. And in the Sefer Yetzirot, the mystical sages who wrote it argued that God had actually created the world out of letters, including the letters that constitute his many and several names. The letter Mem for Mayim created water, um, the letter Shem created fire, and, and, and so on. Um, and so we, I thought, well, how are we going to do this on television? And if only I had a scribe, and it was absolutely amazing when I was actually talking um, in some kind of dilemma about this to a friend of mine. She said, well, I know a scribe, an ex-scribe, and there are not many of them around who aren't fiercely religious and therefore would not be interested in doing it for television. And he's a, a young modern artist now. He's kind of also lost, he's become something of a godless Jew, but incredibly attached to Hebrew calligraphy and understands along with his brother, who again even more serendipitously turned out to be an animator, how the relationship really between the creation of an identity and the creation of letters themselves. So this was one way we could actually visualize the way in which the making of words was the making of something bigger than simply Bible stories. That was presented another challenge, which would take too long to tell you about. But we also needed, of course, to do what television can do best, use our camera and photograph things and cemeteries, as you've seen, and synagogues that you've got a little taste of. And I'll just sort of finish, because I would love to take some um, questions. With this sort of rather unlikely, you can't, it's not a great picture, but, and you can't quite see what it is. In, fa in fact, it's a wedding gown. It's the bridal dress of Fromet Mendelssohn, who was the bride of Moses Mendelssohn, who had been a young religious student, grew up in the town of 
German provincial town of Dessau, had come to Berlin in 1743 and followed his rabbi, basically. But through a, a, a family connection, and he wasn't from a well-off family, usually it was very often the family doctor, because medicine was, at that time, the only... Um, the only discipline available to Jews, the only way you could go to university was if you were studying medicine rapidly. You could also go to various kinds of music conservatories as well. Those were the two ways in which Jews could get into German institutions. So young Moses Mendelssohn, through the doctor friend, began to talk to people in the cream of Berlin Enlightenment intellectual society, particularly a man called Gotthold Lessing who subsequently wrote a great and still moving play called Nathan the Wise. If you compare it to the way Shylock appears in The Merchant of Venice, Lessing's play, not such a great play, but not such a bad play either, is the first time in which you actually have a Jewish hero rather than um, a, a Jewish villain. Lessing and Mendelssohn become close friends. Uh, Mendelssohn goes to Lessing's house, bringing his own kosher food with him. They communicate on everything. It's Lessing who really um, introduces Mendelssohn to the importance of high German and to a publisher, printer, um, called um, Nikolai. And Nikolai, Lessing and Mendelssohn constitute a triangle of amity. And friendship, which we take for granted, wasn't invented by the 18th century. Montaigne's essays are full of very poignant, deep reflections on the nature of friendship. But for the Enlightenment philosophers, friendship was the most natural kind of human connection over and above and against the kind of connections forced on you by the law, by the state, by the army, by official institutions. So for a Jew and a Gentile to be friends make that connection across the lines of prejudice and history and religion was an extraordinary thing. And the other great emblem of the Enlightenment, you'll know, are flowers, are botany, Rousseau's walks and, and so on. And um, the sense, actually, that something new and powerful was flowering um, happens in Germany at this, this moment. And this is a Rococo bridal gown. The, the groom and the bride's names in Hebrew are together at the same level, which is very unusual. And the gown is strewn with this gorgeous garden of 18th century Enlightenment optimism. Um, show you a close-up of peonies and roses and carnations and, and so forth. And it becomes an arc curtain. There was an old tradition which seemingly was revived in the Ashkenazi community of the 18th and 19th century of taking wedding dresses and making them curtain in front of the cupboard that held the Sefer Torah. And I found this is in the... It's seldom shown because the, the fabric, even though it's been restored, is very, very delicate. And this was extremely moving somehow to me that actually there is a blossoming of hope of making a connection between Jewish and non-Jewish life under the influence of a reasoned religion. This was, this was not a moment really where separation of any way was in order, but just the opposite. And that it happened in Berlin is all the more intensely poignant. And what do we feel about it? Melancholy, of course. But I'm really hoping that people who see this film will have their quotient of rejoicing too. Thanks. Simon, I don't know whether you'll welcome this question. Um, the, um, over the last two or three years, there's been quite a lot of 
revisionist historiography of the Jews. Oh, I'm, thinking, I'm talking about mostly Shlomo Sands, yes, yep. whose, uh, whose work has received, to say the least, uh, differentiated uh, reviews. Right. Very difficult for the layperson to make out. And essentially, uh, he argues that, in fact, the Jews are not people who came from the Middle East or the majority of the Mount, and the Ashkenazis you were talking about are, uh, are the famous Khazars. Other people will not have heard of this. My, the, my, so my question is two-part. First, do you think it is right? And second, does it matter? Um, uh, no, he's wrong, and yes, it does matter. Um, I mean, there is empirically... I mean, it's a powerfully argued book. I mean, I should say, I don't know if it makes me party pre, but I gave it slightly rough review in, in the FT. But there's, there's empirical evidence, actually, of the connection. It's not all kind of fantasy. For example, um, in a place called a burial cave in Ketof Hinnom, um, which is on the outskirts of Jerusalem, um, two tiny silver amulets about that big were found in 1979. It's old news, actually. Shlomo Sand should certainly have known this. He chose not to say it. And they're inscribed with verses from um, Leviticus and Numbers, including the words of the priestly blessing, which was recited on all high holy days in, in the synagogue. So it was quite clear that, and this was actually in a burial jar there, there um, it, it, it was dated accurately to the um, late 7th century BC. Okay, so there's no, absolutely no question whatsoever, actually, um, of there being a Hebrew Judaic culture created and formed in that particular place. So, you know, that, I mean, I could go on. There are kind of sort of picky, picky empirical reasons why he's sort of wrong about that connection. The notion that really Judaism um, is entirely, um, you know, it's it, the, the conversion of the Khazars, this would, would take a long time. It's undoubtedly a fact. We've known about it for a long time. The notion that really um, the vast majority of Jews came from Khazaria, from that Caucasus, utterly fails to explain the entirety of half of my family, the Sephardi culture, you know, which was sort of had nothing to do remotely with Russian Caucasus, and lived, 90% of Jews were Sephardim through the entirety of the Middle Ages, and lived in this huge belt from the Aegean through Palestine, Persia, India, Egypt, the entirety of the Maghreb and Spain. You know, so it's it's empirically preposterous um, thesis, actually. Was that, and does it matter? It, of course it matters when someone's wrong and sells a lot of books and attracts a lot of attention. On a subject like this, and maybe a book coming second, compared to the, <laughs> um, compared to the other way around, there must be pros and cons, with, and you've been well, through both processes. Yes, I, I can feel the... Um, uh, the panic of my publishers. They very much hope the two will happen together, actually. And I have been writing the book. I've been writing the book as... It's quite true, you're touching on a raw nerve, as a matter of fact. The book is, is not yet completed. It's on its way, um, which reminds me just... When you say things like, you know, it's like these people at a, a party like us, and someone says, so what are you doing now? And the first one says, oh, I'm writing a book. And the other one says, neither am I. You know, so... so <laughs> they'd be a little shifty about that, you know, really. Um, so... Um, but the truth is, actually, that um, it, is, it is tricky in the sense in which you bring a lot of research, your own research, to television. And television is a kind of brutal... The kind of documentaries I make, historical documentaries, you have to make 
horrible choices of what to leave out in particular. You can't just simply slog through like a kind of visualised A-level notes about Jewish history. Each film must have a kind of organic coherence to it, which imposes horrible decisions about what you decide to deal with and, and, and what you omit that really, in this case, particularly torture me because I feel I have such a sort of personal stake in it. But I think saying that I've been bouncing between research insights I've, I've had, really, um, while researching the book, which I then subsequently brought um, to, um, to the series. And in some cases, they've worked. For example, they got very interested. Freud's was a kind of... I mean, he felt it himself. And he actually said he, it was sort of an act of return. And I got... Possibly because I don't think I've been as estranged as Freud or the composer Arnold Schoenberg, who was a convert. But Schoenberg, under the influence of a vicious row with Vasily Kandinsky, actually... Um, underwent a formal ceremony of readmission to the Jewish religion in the synagogue in the Rue Copernique in Paris in 1933. And I got that, that was, that's a sort of footnote. It's, it's you know, well known to music scholars, but it's kind of footnote of the story of the kind of failure of the German Enlightenment. And I, I, I brought that back to, uh, into the film. So there is, it's kind of two-way street. In this case, actually, filming was such an intense business and editing, which is still going on, is such an intense business that um, it slowed me down in, in, in the book writing. A confessional note, which is of no interest to any of you. That's your problem, Buster, you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Presbyterian. I have a sister and family who are Jewish um, and um, very serious about it. And so it's been interesting having this experience. So they were converts 25 years ago, while she and her then, then fiancé were. And seeing going to the next generation. What I was going to ask was, I mean, in terms of British attitudes, younger people's attitudes, people who have forgotten so much, you know, that the whole post-war generation is now going, um, to what extent is the aim of this project uh, to go to a fresh generation for whom a lot of the stuff that many of us take for granted is, is simply unknown? Yeah. Um, whether it's talking about Auschwitz or whether it's talking much further back. A generation which is much less religious in general, so didn't learn, learn in the Christian context, at least the Jewish history. I mean, to what mm. extent have you, have you prepared this series with a view to a, a reintroduction uh, or a first introduction? Yeah, we have. That's very much been on our mind, actually. It's a heavily Goyesh career, I have to say, really. Um, uh, and um, no, we're constantly asking ourselves, actually, about... Um, not taking things for granted. Um, you know, I think if I was making it, well, it's a co-production with PBS, but if I had sort of made it the other way around in America um, with an intention to actually have it air in Britain, the danger would have been that in the kind of Bagels, Levi's culture, you know, the kind of Jerry Seinfeld world, one could simply, in a kind of yiddish way, take far too much for granted. But we've tried never to do that. Um, for example, it was very important... Um, um, a friend of mine who's here, Alice, said to me, actually, that um, it, nobody actually knows what goes on in a synagogue service. Occasionally you see it in Cohen Brothers' films. And I thought, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And we need, actually, in courtesy of an old friend, Julia Neuberger, we have a little sort of sequence in the, actual, in the very first film that showing, actually, I mean, what I wanted it to do is very striking to me. Suddenly I began to see things that were always there, that the role of the procession in pagan ceremonies that we know about in Mesopotamia was the carrying 
lightning round of Marduk or one of the Babylonian deities in front of which people bow and before which they kiss the ground. And what Jews do is actually, um, actually see the procession of the scrolls of the words and indeed take their prayer shawls and, and kiss the Sefer Torah. And I thought, well, that's, that's certainly worth doing. We also have a sequence. So without it being... Um, you know, were less peculiar and funny and bearded and bobbing than you think we are, without it being sort of creepily self-conscious in that way. Exactly what you say has been very much on our minds and um, hope we fulfilled that part of the rubric. We'll find out. Simon May. Uh, oh, hi, Simon. Hi, Simon. Yes. Uh, Simon, you started your presentation with Freud and ended it with Moses Mendelssohn, who, of course, yep. had to enter through the gate reserved for oxen when he first entered Berlin. Yes, that's um, right. What, what do you think German culture had that made it so particularly fertile for the, for the Jewish mind, even if the love affair wasn't reciprocated? Um, well, you mean Ber Berlin rather than other places, I think? Um, no, I'm talking about German, Austrian, Austro-Hungarian culture in general. Why, why were the Jews so especially attracted to that culture, perhaps more than to any other, and so especially fertile in it? Well, I think, I think it is all to do with... Um, it was to do with Bildung, isn't it? I mean, Bildung is the notion that you self... You know, the Romantics believe that you discovered yourself, really, through cultural refinement. And uh, there, there was, you know, a kind of benevolent sense of surprise. Not always benevolent. There were violent anti-Semitic riots in Germany, the so-called Hep Hep riots in 1819. But there was a certain sense that here, it's true of other cultures too. You know, it's true of the way George Eliot presents Daniel Deronda and, and so on. There was a sense that these are, this is a people of the mind. You know, who've had a very ancient kind of prototype of spiritual building. And you can feel two ways about it. If you're kind of Christian evangelist, you would say it's wonderful that they survived in the dignity of their life of the mind and soul. And once we make friends with them, the next stage is, of course, to convert them. And that is actually the story of the Mendelssohn family. Um, Moses Mendelssohn's grandchild was Felix, who was converted by his father. But some of the Mendelssohns refused to be converted. So I think Jews were represented before they became anathema, before they simply, you know, before anti-Semitism poison the minds of Germans to say they are nothing but a kind of contamination of base commercialism. Wagner is extremely important in his Jewishness in Music, published in 1850 in that respect. There is also this kind of sense in which actually we expect the Jews to be the scientists and the philosophers and the historians and so on. So it was, it was a kind of a very fruitful relationship, but one which was, you know, never exactly in the clear. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.